Little Detours with Regina Brett, where we help you create a life you love out of the life you have. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Regina Brett. Judge Joan Sinnenberg sits on the bench at the Cuyahoga County Court of Common Pleas in Cleveland, Ohio, where she administers justice, but with a healthy dose of mercy and compassion. No other judge looks as striking in the black robe. I credit the string of pearls she wears to work. Even after 13 years of dealing with the worst crimes, she believes people are inherently good. There are so many Judge Sinnenberg stories about her big heart. When she sentenced one man to prison, he stood before her and wept because he had no family to write to him. Judge Sinnenberg promised she would do so and did. Judge Sinnenberg is one of the most mothering people I've ever met. You feel so nurtured in her presence. She dispenses endless hugs, kisses, and compliments. People call her a human magnet. That's what her heart does. It pulls you in and never lets go. There's a Bible verse from Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, that best describes her mission. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Judge Joan Sinnenberg does all three. And she joins me today to talk about how. Judge Sinnenberg, thanks for joining me. It's wonderful to be with you. Thank you so much. So the tricky part, since we're friends, I call you Joan in public, but it's like, do I call you your honor, Judge Joni? Think of like Judge Judy. <laughs> what do you prefer? I have, I have a gavel that says, move over, Judy. Here comes Judge Joni. <laughs> I like being called your friend most of all. That's really nice. Oh, and well, any of you above are fine. All right. Well, for today, I'm going to call you Joan only because that's how I know you, but you are a judge and you were raised in Cleveland. And I love that you toured for a year with the international cast of Up With People. Tell us about that. I was 19 years old after my freshman year of college, and it was unexpected. I saw them perform at Bowling Green, and I was very moved by their message. And it was a pretty corny message of unity and peace and equality. And I interviewed and was accepted to join their cast which was a whirlwind. So I did a 100 city tour, North and South America, traveling with 65 people that became like family, people from all over the world. And it really did shape, I think my worldview. It was an important year. We met people from all walks of life and it was just fascinating. Well, I remember it was a big thing when I was growing up. I remember the song, Up up With People. You still know it? Yeah, you meet them wherever you go. (laughs) (laughs) It was was so joyful. It was joyful. And it's people opening their hearts. So every city that we traveled to, we stayed with a host family. So what each host family had in common was that they wanted you to be there. So they could be people of means or people with very little, but they opened their hearts and their homes to us. And it was just a a wonderful experience. And I felt like I wanted to have that connection, that deeper connection with people as, as I pursued through whatever 19 year old, you know, how little I knew at the time of what I wanted to do, but that did help shape my belief system and my worldview. So you went from something as joyful as up with people to studying law. Now that kind of seems like on the other side of the yin yang balance. I mean, law seems so heavy and serious and also male dominated at the time. 
Well, when I left up with people, I decided I want to be a choreographer, actually, Regina, but that didn't happen. I did, I did some local choreography of some high school plays and had a great time. But I was working as a social worker in Cuyahoga County Jail after I got my degree at Cleveland State. And I felt a deep connection there that I wanted to do something in the world of social justice. And I decided on a lark to apply to law school to Cleveland Marshall. And I got lucky enough to get in. And that was my pursuit. By the way, I thought everybody wanted to be a criminal lawyer, but that's not really the case. So I decided to go to law school and hung my shingle to represent the criminally accused, inspired by my work in the jail. Well, you know, in the jail working as a social worker, I was spending day to day hands on with women and men in the jail, trying to help them solve what might sound like a small issue, but calling their mother, calling their lawyer, because when you're cut off from the world, sitting in jail, waiting for your case, you can lose so much. And so I really realized that those are people in tremendous need. And to satisfy a a desire to work in social justice, I thought criminal defense work would answer a certain calling that I felt. And it did. I absolutely enjoyed the work a great deal. When you say a calling, what words would you put to that calling? The words I put to it would probably be the BG song, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. There's a line in there, his welfare is my concern. And that's how I feel. I get teared up when I think about this song because that is one of my two favorite social justice songs. So, yes, I mean, you can't work in the social work area in a jail day in and day out with people and not feel like they are ignored and forgotten. And that would be the lyrics to what I would feel as a calling. The other one is Johnny Cash's Man in Black. It's got some uh, very deep messages of social justice. It's beautiful. Well, it's so funny because I keep on my desk this little uh, statue my sister got me, and it's somebody carrying their brother. So that idea of he and heavy, he's my brother. Yeah. It's a powerful thing, even though it's kind of a lighthearted song, or I guess it's a deep song. But that stays with you, that image of caring the next person and helping people along. Now, a lot of people go into law more on the tough end of things. You kind of have that heart of a social worker, of more of the um, the humanity of it, not just the, the legality of things. Hopefully. I pray for patience. I pray for humanity. We judge based on the law, but I don't judge a person as being good or bad. It's their conduct that we judge. And I do think that everybody enters this world pure and good. And there are very many influential environmental factors that can shape someone who raises them, how they are raised, what they are exposed to uh, educationally with uh, basic needs of food, shelter, love, uh, someone who really cares for them. And we can understand why we see people who come into the criminal justice system Sometimes it's acts of desperation, and it seems that the people who come into the criminal justice system do not look like the county that we live in. It's working in the jail, visiting in the jail, seeing people in the jail. As a judge, too, there's a gross overrepresentation of African Americans in our jail. We can see how people get in. I think we should all try to take uh, a hand in keeping people out. Once they're here, can we figure out a way for you not to come back? and make this uh, an experience that's not just we're mad at you, but let's figure out what brought you here, deal with that root cause, and try to embrace some 
evidence-based sentencing practices that you can be a judge and have compassion. There's nothing wrong with saying you're standing in front of me today and I care about what happens to you tomorrow. That's okay. I think that's all right. So you really didn't set out to be a judge though. You were a criminal defense lawyer for 16 years? Yes. Yes. Right. It was completely unexpected. And actually at the time I was enjoying my practice, there was a possibility of being appointed to the Cleveland Municipal Court where I really had practiced very little. And I felt that that I didn't know Muni Law that well. And I also was liking what I was doing, but my friend and one of my mentors, Jerry Gold said, who do you think you are to say no to the potential of sitting as a municipal court judge? He said, of course, you'll take that. It's a great honor. And I had the pleasure of working under presiding judge Larry Jones, who is an absolute sweetheart and someone who I hope to emulate. And it was two fabulous years until I wound up running for common pleas. I did get appointed in Cleveland Muni and ran in Cleveland Muni and had the pleasure of winning. It was just a fabulous place to be. I learned so much. It's the people's court. You never know what you're going to see in a day in Cleveland Muni, but you can't be surprised. (laughs) But before you were going to be a judge, you and your husband, Roger, were going to team up as law partners, correct? Well, we had just gotten the stationery printed and had the Sinnenberg and Sinnenberg etched on the door. (laughs) We were just setting up shop when that call came in. Uh, Yes, we had had the pleasure of working together in the past. He's a phenomenal trial lawyer. And yeah, just as timing goes, that was one of those detours I didn't expect it. But, you know, it's funny. When the judgeship came up, my worry was that you can't do enough social justice from the bench. Can you still have that kind of a voice like you can as a defense lawyer? I didn't understand. Because, yes, there's so much you can do. There's a lot you can do because of having the the benefit of sitting on the bench and the resources as a judge. So I was worried about whether I could still follow my pursuits of social justice. And yes, we have all, all sorts of opportunities to do that here. And I love that you get creative in your sentencing sometimes. And I wonder, first of all, how do you decide how to sentence somebody? I know they have a sentencing report and they give you all this information, but you as a human being, Joan Sinnenberg, How do you make that decision? How do you prepare to make that decision? Well, I do rely, as I'm sure many judges do, on the power of prayer, prayer for patience, separating the acts that frustrate us and the acts that frighten us. Uh, Sometimes it's more difficult to deal with someone who's in front of you for the 30th time on a low-level offense than someone who comes in front of you for the first time on a very serious offense. You could see somebody charged with a murder that's maybe a crime of passion they've never been in trouble before. But when you have that person whose behavior is a lot about self-destruction, ravaging their family, you know, when and you're looking at choices, what are you going to send somebody back to jail, even though there's a public frustration, which I think is decreasing. I do think there's greater understanding now because overdose deaths and the overdose epidemic has hit everybody hard. And I think our community's understanding and destigmatizing addiction and mental health issues so that we can respond as a caring community, uh, trying to get someone help when the alternative is that we can predict a bad outcome if we don't intervene. And sometimes you just have to really be very, very patient. And fortunately, you know, I do have a specialized docket here. It's the first in, in the state. It's called Recovery Court for men and women who are duly diagnosed with substance use disorder and trauma, specifically sexual trauma. 
and we do see that uh, treatment works. We are in year six, but there are times that we have to work with people over and over and over. But if you have cancer, you're not in the criminal justice system. You have addiction use disorder, you're in the criminal justice system. It seems unfair sometimes, and it's a tough disease. And we have to even help our clients destigmatize it so that they can look at their health in, in a healthy way, in a holistic way. And those are the toughest decisions to make, really. Do I give this person one more chance? And if you don't, then you feel like you're giving up on them and the potential for recovery. Long answer. So how do you balance when you're sitting behind the bench and you have the people who've been victimized by this person, maybe their family, maybe a stranger, and they come to you wanting justice. The person who is guilty wants justice and you're the one that is going to decide. So how do you take all that in and then administer justice? Right. Now, if we're talking about victims of violent crime, it's different because then we have to consider the dangerousness of a person. That's a different matrix. But when we are talking about someone whose family has been victimized, hurt, let down, it means broken family relationships, but everybody still wants the same thing. Everyone wants that person to recover. You know, they've kind of thrown their hands up in the air. They've had it. They're locking them out. They're not invited back. But what we do see with family members is they beg for help. They are the ones that will come in and snitch somebody out. You know, she told you that she's going to meetings. She left a meeting early or she missed one. And the families are almost like truth tellers. They will come and appreciate the accountability that the specialized docket and the team offers to someone. So everybody wants that. It's high accountability. It's working with them. Plus, once someone gets on the road to recovery, the rewards come. They're invited back to mom's house for dinner. They are feeling less isolated. They may regain custody of their kids, which is a whole other thing. With opioid-addicted women, there's an 85% unexpected pregnancy rate. So we have a lot of families expanding where this was not being planned, and, and sometimes there's already custody issues. That has spawned another project that we've developed called the Pro Bono Collaborative, working to help clients in the criminal justice system deal with their civil issues where they don't automatically get court-appointed counsel. Judge Joan Sinnenberg, do you ever get overwhelmed, kind of that compassion fatigue or like, here's this person who keeps coming back and how do you not get frustrated? Maybe at the disease, maybe the addiction. I would guess it would sometimes feel like it just wears you down. My husband calls it secondary PTSD. Since everyone that we're dealing with is traumatized and my team and I hear their stories, you know, every time that we interact with them. So our team meets as a team without our clients. And it's kind of like the parents having a chance to sit down and talk about the kids and reflect on the day. And that's healthy. And we each try to uh, have our own healthy pursuits. Having fitness is a part of the day. Having mother nature, you know, who's always just a step away. Being able to enjoy family time, time with my husband, time with my friends, that kind of thing, even though it's different today. But I think recognizing it, praying for intervention from the God that I recognize, and knowing that that does make a difference, praying for peace and trying to have a healthy outlets, whether it's you know, gardening or being outdoors and going for a bike ride with Roger, whatever it might be. All right. Well, we are at the halfway mark already. I just want to pause and thank you for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett and to our guest today, Judge Joan Sinnenberg. I know you have many podcast choices to listen to, and I'm just so grateful you chose to listen to mine. Judge Sinnenberg, 
One of the most famous sentences you gave out was on Good Morning America. There was a man who ran on the football field in the middle of a Cleveland Browns game. And this person came before you, and I love this. He had to serve his three-day sentence over Super Bowl weekend, and you banned him from attending Browns games for the next five years. How do you come up with that? Well, I got a little help from Judge Dick Ambrose, I do want to say. <laughs> but we wouldn't want a guy like that in the Brown Stadium again. I said, how do you ever enforce it? But it was a misdemeanor. That was in Cleveland Municipal Court. And what he did, I realized after hearing from the Browns administration that showed up at the pretrials in this misdemeanor case, is that it posed a real danger to fan safety and to players. So not trying to literally hit him where it hurts, but he did go to jail just for a weekend. It was Super Bowl weekend, no TV. So that was it. And I told him no Browns games, but he was doing really well on probation after a year. And this is a kid that grew up with no dad. He was highly intoxicated at the time. He, he had admitted to drinking 20 beers. So after the year, the Browns actually had, you know, hosted, gave me two tickets to bring him to a game and sit in a box with him uh, to say that he set a good example, that kind of thing. So he turned it around. Wait a minute. So the team gave you two tickets so you could go to a game with this guy? Yeah, they had us sit in one of their boxes. It was a really sweet turn of events. <laughs> I couldn't imagine any way of really enforcing keeping a person out of Brown Stadium. Maybe today there's some way of doing it, but there wasn't back then. And he he did start going to you know AA meetings and he quit drinking. And, and I think he, hey, listen, he took a hit from that giant guy in the Steelers. I mean, he got the worst end of the deal anyway. Harrison, is that his name? I watched that. Ouch. I mean, that was rough. Yeah. That was punishment enough, huh? That was punishment <laughs> enough, right. Joan, I love that even when people come before you and you're able to recognize what they are doing right, you have a compassion, you look them in the eye, you offer encouragement, even compliment them on the fact that they got dressed up for court. And for other people, that might not seem a big deal, but we're talking some people who don't own a shirt with a collar, who don't own a pair of dress pants. Tell us about how you try to kind of give them that little bit of dignity when they come in front of you. Working in the county jail, I realized that there are people that, like you say, may not have the type of clothing that you would think would be appropriate for court, may not have a meal at the end of the day. So I think to the times as a criminal defense attorney standing in front of a judge with a nervous client, myself feeling like I'm shaking in my high heels, wondering what the judge is going to say. And, you know, if a judge is unkind or uses that moment in time to disparage someone, it doesn't make anything any better. I think that there was a time when the whole idea of lock them up and throw away the key and dress someone down makes victims feel better. Today, people who are victims want to see a perpetrator move on as well. People who are victimized want to be made whole, left alone, and they want a price to be paid. But when it comes to the discourse in a courtroom, I've never felt that I'm going to get more out of the person standing in front of me if I speak to them disrespectfully. It's a small moment in time, and it's a moment that may be forgotten, especially if someone's going to prison, to try to say, before you go, you'll have choices of how you'll spend your time. I hope you'll choose wisely. I hope that you'll be thinking about crossing a different finish line here, getting back to your family. 
how you conduct yourself in prison matters, how, what you accomplish matters. You know, you'll be paying your debt to society. Hopefully you will be made whole and not come back. I mean, in my faith, you say sin this way no more. Here, you're trying to say something to someone. The, the sentence speaks for itself. If someone has to be incarcerated, that's where you put the hurt on. That's where justice is served. It doesn't mean that you have to speak to someone disrespectfully. In my 30 years as a journalist, I've been to so many hearings where judges, it felt like they were just rubbing that person's nose in the mud as much as they could. And there was such a, sometimes an arrogance that felt painful to everybody in the courtroom. It's so refreshing to hear that you can have compassion and still hand down an appropriate sentence and have that mixture of kind of mercy and justice together. Yes. Well, we share these streets. Uh, There are people that are repeat violent offenders. Those are not the tough, tough, tough decisions. It's those quality of life, annoying crimes, sometimes family member to family member, often drugs and alcohol involved. That's where we really have to think just restoratively, rehabilitatively. Hopefully anyone could look at that type of a situation and say, how do I keep this person from coming back? We know now that if you send that low level offender to prison, you might wind up creating a person with more criminogenic behaviors than the person that you sent in the first place. So we have got to continue to think of how we keep that person from coming back and serving justice to every single person, especially victims. I'm talking about victims in violent crimes, but again, it sounds funny, Regina. Typically, I think most judges get to the same place when there's a certain type of conduct that you're dealing with. If it's violent and and hurting somebody, I mean, I think judges wind up the same place. It's those, it's those other cases where you're dealing with human needs and a person who's just in a bad way. I want to talk for just a minute about a really important case that we kind of worked on together, me as a journalist, you as a judge. There's a man, Joe D'Ambrosia, who spent 20 years on death row. And it turns out that the police and the prosecutor had hit evidence that would have been important to show that he had not committed the murder. You were such an advocate for justice for Joe D'Ambrosia. Can you talk a little bit about that, uh, about the risk you took kind of putting your neck out there for somebody that had been sitting in prison for so long? Justice had been denied for decades. Fortunately, there was a roadmap through the federal court system. Jones Day represented Joe D'Ambrosio pro bono for a number of years. All of this orchestrated by Father Neil Kakuthi, that amazing parish leader on the West side, parish pastor, and also a nurse and also an attorney. He, he was like a one man dream team. He was everything that Joe really needed. Up until the very eve of trial, evidence was still being withheld by the state of Ohio. And more disturbing were a pretty blatant bullying tactics to try to have me uh, removed from the case uh, for reasons that were made up. That just added a very painful element to a troubling case. And it was almost like trying to further rob the process of any kind of just proceeding to allege that I had represented his co-defendant, which was easily disprovable. Uh, There was nothing to back that up. This being taken, of course, to the top justice of the Ohio Supreme Court, who who makes those decisions about whether a judge is to be removed from a case, because the state of Ohio did try to do that. They did not succeed. Uh, Ultimately, Joe was 
dismissed. He is an exoneree. And then I don't know if that answers your question. That was a, I will tell you, that was a personally painful time, uh, not to go too far here, but the plane dealer and the state of Ohio, they had angles that had to do with me favoring a death row killer, that kind of thing. Thank you for shedding a different perspective on it. I really, truly appreciate that. It was a dark time, but this, to me, the eye on the ball, it was really about the right outcome. You know, my grandmother was probably the biggest influence in my life. She was an Italian immigrant and from very clear lessons when I was little, she made it known, you you don't be a bully. You don't let anybody bully you. You don't let anybody bully anybody else. So you take that to your quiet place and you just have to focus and kind of shut out the noise. And that can happen in all sorts of cases. So after that was all done, if I may share a quick story with you. So it's all done. And uh, my my husband had been extremely supportive through it all. And he said, you know what, we're going to uh, go on a little getaway. And he took me on a trip to Puerto Rico, which was like after the third day of the skies just opening up and downpour, downpour, downpour. He said, you know what, we're going to go back home. We'll do something different. I said, okay, so the forecast isn't changing. There's two seats left to Cleveland. We can get on this plane right now. I said, okay. So he said, you have an hour to leave, executive decision, all that kind of stuff. Sure, dear, let's go. So packed up, go to the airport. It's packed. Everybody's trying to get out of San Juan, I guess. And I get on the plane, the only two seats, and everybody else on the plane was Joe D'Ambrosio, Father Neil Kakuthi, and the worshipers from St. Clarence that had been celebrating his freedom And there we were, it was the most random, or so it seemed, encounter. And I was just reading the newspaper, and I hear, excuse me, and I look up, and it was Joe D'Ambrosio, who, and all of a sudden, I was, like, paranoid. (laughs) Like, is there anybody else here? Is this a setup? And then Father Neil's voice came from out of nowhere, and he said, this is uh, not a coincidence. And it was just a very unbelievable, unforgettable moment And then uh, we had a conversation. I actually, we switched seats and I sat with Joe and Roger sat with Father Neil and uh, Joe thereafter sent me this, um, these crystal scales of justice that sit on my bench. Making me cry. I mean, I'm still moved, Joan, that you put so much on the line to fight for Joe D'Ambrosio when everything was coming against you. It was a difficult time. The prosecutor's office was fighting you on this. There were so many people really trying to trip you on the way to justice here. And you relentlessly pursued justice for somebody else. And I, I have always admired you for that. And they tried to trip me too, but together, Joe is free. And uh, I, I love that he gave you those scales. What a gift. Thank um, you. I never knew him before, by the way. I never knew him before. I had no dog in the fight. It was just, as you say, there was justice had been denied for a long time. But thank you. Well, and I love that quote from Micah, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God, because it's not about an ego trip. It's not about getting your name in the paper. It's to, to fight for this person who doesn't have anybody fighting for him other than the priest that discovered him on death row and uh, and opened that door. We just have a few minutes left, but I got to talk to you about Roger. You're, you and Roger are like teenagers in love. <laughs> I, you are. And I love it. Every July 18th on your wedding anniversary... <laughs> You surprise him wearing the wedding dress. And it's like a big, poofy Cinderella dress. It's not like a little slender, sleeky thing. Somehow you shove it in like a duffel bag, pop out of the restaurant, 
you know, bathroom wearing it. Tell us a little bit about why you do this. Well, I think my mother probably impressed upon me wore things more than once, right? <laughs> so I uh, decided year one just for fun to put it on, and then it became a thing. And I have to say this about my husband. He's kind of easy to uh, trick on this wedding dress thing because either that or he's a great actor and acts like he's surprised every time. But yes, I'll sometimes hide it somewhere in the morning or I'll put it on in the morning and then I'll think that Roger will think that the wedding dress thing is done. And then I'll take it wherever we might be wrapping up our day, whether I've worn this dress to the Rock Hall and I've worn it at a variety of Cleveland restaurants (laughs) on a boat on a plane. <laughs> uh, on a cruise with you. You've had a, a boat on Lake Erie. I just love that that the that yeah. the love and romance is still in that marriage. <laughs> I mean, half of the time he'll be carrying it and not even know it. I'll tell him I'll grab this picnic basket or something that's got my wedding gown in there and then <laughs> I'll go and switch up when I have a minute. But it's it is fun and it's uh we just celebrated twenty one years as a matter of fact. And it means that every June I start doing a super low carb, a <laughs> little bit extra workout to make sure that the wedding dress is very comfortable when I slip into it. <laughs> that is too funny. Now, I just want to talk for a minute. You had planned to have children, you and Roger. You weren't able to have children. You've had, you've had several miscarriages. Can you talk just a little bit about that loss? I know for many women, it's such a, a lonely journey and it's such a private and sometimes women feel almost like a shame that there's something wrong that they couldn't have children. How do, how do you make peace with wanting something like that and not being able to have that? So working with recovery court now, I would say acceptance is key. Uh, at the time you don't feel like that. You just feel overwhelmingly sad. And then every time we felt over, overwhelmingly optimistic. So it just came to a point where uh, we had to accept from uh, our wonderful physician this wasn't happening and plus time wasn't on my side uh, I was in my low 40s so I was getting to a point where actually I was in my mid 40s so as we were getting toward the end of those those goals but again not to sound totally cliche but I feel like there are opportunities in other ways whether it's with my nieces and nephew and, and as it turned out, and this is just perhaps, you know, how you view things. After our most recent loss, shortly thereafter, my sister's eldest child, she had five kids, had a catastrophic accident. And he was 12. She had four little ones, uh, four little girls. And Roger and I took the girls in for that summer after he had had that boating accident. Today, thank God, he's doing absolutely fantastically well. But we've had opportunities to be present in different ways. And we have got to just make the best of that. I'm blessed that my husband uh, has two sons and we have three grandkids that, you know, it's it's all good. And I have a huge Italian family on my side. He has a a much smaller family. So (laughs) we have no shortage of kids. And, And plus, I think that I would say I'm guilty of kind of momming the people in my recovery court here. It was definitely not what I expected. And that that was a matter of acceptance, asking for comfort from God, having a loving family and and husband and, and, you know, it's, it's acceptance. It's, that's a tough one to swallow. 
You know, and Joan, you are one of the, really the most mothering people I know. When I'm in your presence, I feel so loved. And I almost feel like you weren't able to have your own children, but you are like, you're sort of mothering everybody that comes through your court and the people that work for you and with you. There's like a presence you have that might've been just spent on one or two children, but instead you're, you're, it's like peanut butter. You're spreading it like all over the world that you're in. And I think that's a great gift. That's so kind of you to say, thank you. I hope it's not overbearing on anybody who I work with. Oh, I don't think so. We just have a a couple of minutes and I want to talk a little bit about your faith. You go to mass often, you're uh, very religious, but also very spiritual. And I wonder, you know, how, how did you come by that faith? Well, actually, initially, just because that's the way that we were raised in a Catholic household. So mass was pretty much mass and coming home to this, to uh, my mother making sauce. So uh, it was just the tradition, Sunday mass and Sunday having uh, spaghetti and meatballs and, and sitting down with the family. And then as odd as this might sound, we lived very close to a church. And then when I was a teenager, just cutting through the backyard, through the woods, I could go catch an evening mass, which I found to be a peaceful place to be, especially when it's not particularly crowded. And then working downtown, sometimes getting into St. John's is a, is a lovely way to break up the day. Now it's it's different, too, with COVID. And it is different looking in churches, too. But they're still open, or they're open again. And I have found that, again, getting back to recovery court, our clients suffer in a way that we all do, and that's the loss of a loved one. And when you lose a loved one, uh, parents, grandparents, uh, for our clients, many times their friends, there is comfort in turning to God. And I have found that in losing both of my parents and my grandmother, to whom I was extremely close, that there is there is a God there. And, and I, I will tell you, Bishop Pillow told me this a long time ago when my mom passed away, 2006. She's always with you. And there, there's comfort. I, you know, I believe, and I hope I'm right, but I know you know the saying, I'd rather believe and be right than not believe. And <laughs> however that saying goes, I do believe. <laughs> and I find comfort. You know, I find comfort. I'm sure I'm not the only judge that says a prayer for patience and and, you know, to, to listen to people and to just get some grace. And it gets you through the day. And it gets me through this job so many times. It's hard to hear what people suffer at the hands of another person. That's hard. It's hard to see people hurting themselves, but it's hard to hear what victims endure. And so, yeah, I, I count on God and I'm grateful. I'm very, very grateful. We start our day, my husband and I, we, you know, we thank our God. We thank our God for every day and we beg forgiveness for our shortcomings and we just want to be better. That is so beautiful. Well, uh, Joan, thank you so much, uh, Judge Joan Sinever. Um, tell us the best way to connect with you. Do you have a website or you try to avoid public? Do we have a, a website? The court does. <laughs> we have a closed recovery court uh, Facebook page. But I don't do so much social media, but I'm really easy to find if anybody ever wanted to call me at work. My phone number is 216-443-8727. And uh, my bailiff is Jennifer Schwartz, who's wonderful. And also, I would like to invite anyone that might be interested in joining us for a recovery court session. If you're uncomfortable coming to the courthouse, we could always zoom you in uh, and you can see what we do. And we do have a graduation every three months. 
And we just had a graduation a couple of weeks ago, and it was 15 graduates during COVID that made it through all the rigors of recovery court. And it was so inspirational. They each get to share a bit about their journey. So uh, another way to reach us would, well, just call. Is that, does that answer That's your question? Good. That's good. And I'll also have that on my website, reginabrett.com, and uh, a bit of your bio so people can read more about you. Oh, the Pro Bono Collaborative for yes. people with criminal cases that have civil needs that could use volunteer counsel, please contact us and we'll, we'll link you up with our pro bono uh, intern. We're going to be reviving the program soon. All right, great. Well, thank you. Well, my biggest takeaway today is to really separate the behavior from the person and doing that with grandchildren, husband, friends. I mean, just to be able to, to separate those two, that it's, what somebody does is different than who they are. Absolutely. Yes, you can love a person and not like what they're doing at the, at the moment. Thank you for all of your insightfulness here. I appreciate it. I want to close with your answer to this question I ask all my guests. Joan, what is the best thing you do for yourself every day to create a life you love out of the life you have? I choose happiness through prayer and through time connecting with Mother Nature and my family. I believe happiness is a choice. We all have struggles. I truly believe that you can start every day thanking God choosing to be happy and finding the little miracles that exist in every challenge. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking this time with us. Thank you. It's wonderful to see you. I really appreciate this time together. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to little detours with Regina Brett. If you want to know more about today's guest and topic, head to my podcast page at reginabrett.com. There you can also subscribe to my email newsletter. So you never miss an opportunity to be inspired. For more episodes, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review my show so we can reach and inspire even more people. Thanks for joining us today. Now go make something possible.